Welcome back to season two of Life After a Sinus. I'm your host, Johnny Myers, and I'm so excited to come back for the second season. In this episode, I'm sitting down with 2010 alumnus Zach Schamberg, president and CEO of the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association. He's discussing some of the most pressing long-term topics today. The over 65 population is one of the fastest growing populations nationally as the baby boomer generation enters retirement. And according to the U.S. Census Bureau, 27.5% of Pennsylvania's population will be 60 and older by 2030. With so many Pennsylvanians getting older, Harrisburg is paying increasing attention to the needs of this growing demographic. The Pennsylvania Healthcare Association, PHCA, advocates on behalf of over 400 member facilities that provide high-quality, resident-centered healthcare to older Pennsylvanians. We hear about Zach's journey through Harrisburg as he tackles everything from price gouging to nurse staff shortages to the coming generational storm. Zach, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me and thank you for the opportunity. The first thing I'd like to ask you is what does the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association do and advocate for? So we are a statewide advocacy organization and we're located in Harrisburg, but we represent folks from throughout Pennsylvania and really nationwide at this point because we're doing so much advocacy work in Washington, DC. We represent long-term care in Pennsylvania and that includes nursing homes, personal care homes and assisted living communities. We not only represent the providers, but we represent the workers or the frontline caregivers, the healthcare heroes in long-term care. And I think most importantly, we represent the residents who they serve, who are often vulnerable senior citizens with many underlying conditions or comorbidities. And our role has really become elevated in the last two years because given the COVID-19 pandemic, we represent the providers and the workers and the residents who have been at the epicenter of everything that's happened, who have been on the front lines of the pandemic. It's been our job over the last two years, since March 2020, really, to be the conduit between those folks on the front lines and then our elected leaders here in Harrisburg or in Washington, D.C., the governor and his administration, the regulators, Department of Health, Department of Human Services, and it's our job to share what's happening and more importantly, what they need and what support systems need to be in place. And I've been very proud to be at the head and, and the leader of this organization through this tough time. Let's start with talking about COVID because it certainly has impacted Pennsylvanians and the country and the planet. And it's impacted a lot about how we think about healthcare, especially with older populations. How has COVID changed long-term care strategies and has it changed the way you manage PHCA? Yeah, it's changed everything. And I don't think just in long-term care, I think it's changed everything in the healthcare continuum and not just in Pennsylvania, but throughout the country, whether it's long-term care, whether it's hospitals, whether it's ambulatory services or EMTs, I think every single provider and every single worker has had to rethink what they do and how they do it. When I look back in late February 2020, which seems like 15 years ago, but was just a little bit, or we're approaching two years now, I can recall a conversation I had 
with the head of the Washington Healthcare Association, my counterpart out in Washington state. And if you remember, the first cases of COVID-19 in the United States actually occurred in a nursing home in Washington state. And I remember asking him, if this makes its way to Pennsylvania, what do we need to be ready for? What's gonna change for us? And he said, Zach, everything is gonna change. You're gonna need PPE or personal protective equipment. You're gonna need to find a way to get testing. You're gonna need to find a way to get staffing support. And through the last two years, obviously all of those, all of those predictions came true. And at this point, given all that we've been through, I think some of the really alarming trends have presented themselves. And I would start with the workforce shortage. And I know every industry is dealing with a workforce shortage. In long-term care and in healthcare, it's a crisis. And in, in Pennsylvania, in our nursing homes, in assisted living and personal care, we've made it one of our number one priorities to try to supplement that workforce. So the last two years have taught us a lot. It's taught us how to care for residents differently. It's taught us how to try to communicate with residents' family members differently. Before it was visitation in person. And throughout the last two years, we really haven't been able to do that. So learning through technology and employing technology, it's made us reconsider how a nursing home or any healthcare institution is laid out and developed. And I think that will change things moving forward. So again, I think I'd go back to my original point. It's changed everything. Now, in terms of how I manage PHCA, how has the pandemic changed that? I think the opportunity that the pandemic has afforded an organization like ours, the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association, is that prior to March 2020, long-term care didn't really have a voice. You probably didn't know what nursing homes did or who they cared for. The pandemic has given us a voice, whether we like it or not, and whether we've chosen to utilize that voice or not. In my opinion, it's given us a spotlight, a microphone, a bullhorn, whatever you want to call it. And I've been very proud of the fact that over the last two years, we've taken that bullhorn, we've taken that microphone or that spotlight, and we've utilized it. And we've told legislators, we've told the governor, we've told folks in Washington, D.C., here's what we need and why we need it. And I've been very proud that we've been able to deliver for this sector over the last two years. You talked briefly about staffing shortages and problems with nursing home agencies. Can you go a little bit more into detail about that? So what are the current challenges with staffing nursing homes and what, are, what pieces of legislation are you advocating for to remediate that? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, it's aside from funding the number one issue for long-term care providers. It's what keeps long-term care providers and myself up at night right now. So we actually asked our members about this back in September. We did a, a member survey to find out what was happening on the ground, on the front lines. And when we saw the results of that survey, I think it, it really was a, a frightening development. And here's why. Our providers told us that since February 2020, they had lost nearly 20% of their entire workforce. The average nursing home in our membership had more than 21 positions open that they just could not fill. 
many of our nursing homes were struggling just to meet state staffing minimums day to day. And what that meant was they were going to have to rely on costly agency or outside staffing rather than their full-time employees. And so what does that mean you know, for someone listening today, maybe with a loved one in long-term care? What that means is that providers, due to the staffing shortages, providers had to limit or restrict new admissions. In other words, they were saying to vulnerable senior citizens who needed care, we're sorry, we're closed, simply because they didn't have enough staff. And Pennsylvania is one of the oldest states in terms of population in the entire country. So to see that trend playing out back in September and October was very alarming. What we're seeing today, and the Philadelphia Inquirer has reported on this, many newspapers across the country have reported on this, we're starting to see bottlenecks and backups in hospitals. Hospitals can't discharge residents because in large part, nursing homes can't accept them. Personal care homes and assisted living communities can't accept them. It's not a product of, we, we just don't have room. There are rooms, there are beds available. We just don't have staff. And that's a very scary trend for Pennsylvania. That seems like a big challenge if the beds are available, but hospitals cannot discharge older patients to those beds solely because of staffing. So what is the solution to this? How, how do we get through this? Is it higher wages? Is it different? I don't know. I mean, is it smaller? What, what is the solution? Yeah, well, I think there are many solutions. And unfortunately, what we're finding with the workforce shortage, and probably not just in long-term care and healthcare, but everywhere, there's no silver bullet, right? Because if there was, I think we would have solved it by now. Earlier this week, we, the Pennsylvania Healthcare Association, actually tried to tackle this issue in five steps. And what we did was put together what we called the Care Capacity Crisis Plan. And we sent it to members of the legislature, the governor and the Department of Health to say, if we go step-by-step step and enact these things, if we look at the problem regionally, if we bring in the National Guard or FEMA or Pima in terms of staffing, if we get American Rescue Plan stimulus funds to workers, because you mentioned those wages, we've got to recruit, but we've got to retain our workers. If we look to other states to see what they're doing and what's working in states like Minnesota and Texas, Massachusetts and Connecticut, if we do all of those things, I think we're going to get to a place where we feel more comfortable about accepting new residents and being able to care for new residents. But what we're doing right now is not working. So you had asked about legislation. Over the last two years, we've worked to enact legislation that's been primarily focused on workforce. In 2020, there was a bill that passed in Pennsylvania that created a new position for nursing homes called the Temporary Nurse Aid. And that was a really creative solution to getting more people to the front lines. This year, there was a bill passed that allowed nurses to do some of their training virtually or online. Because believe it or not, even at the start of the pandemic, all training had to be done in person, which we know we really couldn't do. And we're looking at other opportunities and other pieces of legislation, other vehicles to solve this. The other point I would make is that another bill passed earlier this year or in early 2021 
that made Pennsylvania part of the nurse licensure compact or the NLC. And what that means is Pennsylvania can now recruit nurses that are a part of the compact from other states. Before it would have taken six months to bring someone in from New Jersey. Now it'll take six days. So we can take these incremental steps and it is going to be a series of steps, but we've got to start down that path now before we really get into a disastrous environment. And you mentioned states like Minnesota, Texas, Connecticut, and Massachusetts have legislation that seems to be working. What are some pieces of legislation that they have that we could adopt? I'll give you a great, great example. In Minnesota, and I keep citing this when I talk to members of the legislature, and in Pennsylvania, they say, Minnesota, really? But in Minnesota, their governor has announced or enacted a program where they're using federal stimulus dollars to train 1,000 CNAs, certified nursing aides. They're going to train them in a month, and then they're going to send these 1,000 new CNAs right to the front lines in nursing homes. So they're going to pay for it, they're going to expedite the training, and they're going to get them to where they need to go. I love that idea. And that's something that we should be doing here in Pennsylvania. Another example, and I didn't mention it before, is a state like Montana. Montana is providing a tax credit for all healthcare workers to take advantage of childcare. One of the biggest challenges that we have in Pennsylvania in long-term care is that many of our workers are female, many of our workers are mothers, many of our workers are single mothers. Childcare is very, very important. And that certainly exacerbated the issue when schools closed in March, 2020. But if we can find ways to incentivize our workers to utilize childcare, I think that's gonna bring more people back to the front line. So again, other states are taking really positive steps, we need to do the same. Thinking about the bigger picture for Pennsylvania, you mentioned it's an older state and the population is getting older. There's not more younger people moving in. What do you think the biggest challenge is gonna be for Pennsylvania demographically, economically, et cetera? And how is all this gonna impact our state's future? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're exactly right. I mean, we, we, we export too many young people and we import many, many senior citizens because we're a very attractive state to retire in because we don't tax retirement income. Again, we're one of the oldest states in terms of population in the entire country. And so you ask about what are the challenges? I think the, the primary challenge is being able to keep our promise to our older population when it comes to providing care. So right now in this state, if you don't have sufficient personal funds, you can utilize the state's Medicaid program. And that program may pay for nursing home care, and it may pay for home care. But we don't fund our Medicaid program adequately. And if our population continues to grow in terms of senior citizens, but continues to shrink in terms of college graduates. Are we going to have sufficient funding available to maintain or keep that promise to provide care, to allow the Medicaid program to pay for care? And I do worry that if our population continues to shift like this, that we're not gonna be able to do that. So we need a sustainable model here in Pennsylvania. We need a sustainable funding source. And right now, it doesn't look like we have one. 
And I think the same is true across America. Are you seeing a similar challenge for other states? Are other states getting younger and better funded? Well, I, I think in terms of states getting younger, I mean, you are seeing a, a mass exodus from states like Pennsylvania or California, and folks are going to Texas and North Carolina and Florida, where you're going to see that tax base increase, and it's going to be able to support programs like these, social programs like these. So I think, and it's a larger conversation, but I think as a state or from a state perspective, we need to be attractive here in Pennsylvania to younger Pennsylvanians or to younger people, college graduates from other states who want to come here, who want to start a family here, who want to start a career here. And again, right now, folks are leaving, not necessarily staying or moving in. Let's talk more about your time at Ursinus and how you came to PHCA. Can you tell me what you studied at Ursinus, what made you want to come, and what your career path looked like until now? Yeah, so when I was at Ursinus, I graduated high school in 2006 and then went to Ursinus until 2010 when I graduated. I was a communications major, and I had to look all this up, by the way to try to remember this last night. I was a communications major and a politics and theater double minor. Um, I went to Ursinus because I grew up in Westchester, in Chester County, and my stepfather had gone to Ursinus many years before. And I remember looking at, at schools like Penn State because that's where all my friends were going or Pitt because that's where I had a lot of friends going. And my stepdad kept saying, Zach, you need to go check out her sinus, take the 45 minute drive. And I did. And I absolutely loved it. I fell in love for my very first visit. I went there for an orientation and I thought it was really, I thought it was really exciting that I was one of just two of my high school graduating class to go there. And it turns out the, the other classmate I had, we joined the same fraternity, Phi Kappa Sigma at, at her science. So it, it, it's a small world. But during my time at Ursinus, I was involved in theater and I was in all the plays, two plays a year, every year. I was the opinions editor of the school newspaper. I was an RA, I was a member of, of a fraternity. And I just loved the fact that Ursinus afforded its students and afforded me the ability to be involved like that. And all of those experiences really combined for me as I started taking internships after my sophomore year. And in my senior year, I did an internship with then Congressman Pat Toomey, who was running for US Senate, and he's our, one of our current US senators. And I, I really fell in love with the political process. Right after I graduated, I went to be a campaign manager. We won that race and I became a chief of staff. I ran another race in 2012. And then I came here to PHCA to be our Director of Government Affairs in 2014. Just three years ago in 2019, I became our President and CEO. So it, it's been a not so much a long journey, but a really varied journey in what I've been able to do. What are some skills that you learned at our science that you still use today? Well, I, I think number one, public speaking. And I, I really attribute that and I owe that to my theater professors, Dominic Scudera, who I believe is still at Ursinus, and, and Bev Redman, who has moved on. 
everyone in the theater department. I, I don't, I, I can't emphasize the importance enough that in a role like this, or even in a role like Director of Government Affairs, how important public speaking and communicating are. Speaking succinctly, which hopefully I've done so far in this podcast, uh, condensing a message and delivering that message and interpreting the crowd, interpreting emotions and, and playing on that and utilizing that. I really learned that in the theater at Ursinus. And I think that was very, very important. The other thing I would mention is being able to think critically. And Ursinus really afforded me the opportunity, whether it was CIE or, or the other classes that I took and the other professors I learned from, to really think outside the box and don't accept the question as it's presented to you. Um, to really think critically about everything that you do and all the steps that you take, that is infinitely uh, important in a role like this. Not many people would say that a theater major would accelerate your career. People do theater majors out of passion, but it really sounds like you've got a lot of practical skill from it. You know, a, a lot of folks told me, even while I was at Ursinus, that I was wasting my time with a theater minor. And I was going to do the plays anyway. I was in, I was in theater in high school. I loved it. I knew that's what I wanted to do at Ursinus. I think on my first trip there, they brought me into the kaleidoscope and I got to see the black box theater and the big theater, which I don't think I ever actually got to do or perform a show on, believe it or not, that gigantic big theater. Um, which I'm still bitter about to this day. But I was in the black box, on, I think, every, um, every semester. And you're right. A lot of folks would discount that experience. But for me, it was very, very important in shaping you know, my leadership methods, my development. And again, I can't emphasize enough the importance of when you're communicating, whether it's with members of the legislature, the general public, the media, that that experience has really helped me decide which messages to use and how to deliver them. The question we ask every guest, if you remember where you lived your freshman year, one of the two dorms, and accordingly, one of your favorite sinus traditions or memories. Yeah, so I lived in BPS, and I'm glad I did. Um, I remember being very on the fence about going to BPS or BWC. And then at that time, when I came to Ursinus, we didn't have, is it new building? Is that what it was called? Yeah, there's two. There's new and there's north. And there's north, right. So we didn't, we had north, but it was only for upperclassmen. We didn't have new building yet. And when I was an RA, I was actually RA my junior year in new and then I came back to BPS RA my senior year. And I love being a freshman year RA. But yeah, I, I lived in BPS. As far as traditions go, I, mean, I don't know if it, it's tradition, but again, the things that I was involved with, whether it was putting out a weekly edition of The Grizzly or acting in a play one each semester or going to the Phi Kappa Sigma events every other weekend and being with my brothers, Again, it's not so much a tradition, but it's the opportunity to be so involved and to be involved in so many different things. When you start your career, you find that unfortunately there's not enough time to do all that anymore when you have a full-time job. And like me, when you have a family and when you have two young kids at home, 
But at her sinus, thinking about all that I was able to do, I mean, that was for me, that really made my college experience. Zach, thank you so much again for joining us. It was great talking with you. Thank you for having me.